Section 64, Introduction Since Emma and Joseph had been living on the Morley farm, and it was now to be sold, the Lord commanded both Joseph and Sidney Rigdon to secure new residences. A well-to-do farmer named John Johnson had a large home at Hiram, Ohio, about 30 miles southeast of Kirtland. He invited Joseph and Emma to make their residence with the Johnsons, and he would arrange to find a place nearby for Sidney Rigdon so he could serve as clerk for Joseph while he worked on revising the scriptures. It was about this time that Joseph received the following revelation on September the 11th, 1831. By way of introduction, he made the following comments. The early part of September of 1831 was spent in making preparations to remove to the town of Hiram, Ohio, and renew our work on the translations of the Bible. This is in Sperry D&C Compendium, pages 268 and 9. Now the text of section 64. Behold, thus saith the Lord your God unto you, O ye elders of my church, hearken ye and hear, and receive my will concerning you. The Lord makes it clear at the very beginning that he is addressing this revelation to the elders of the entire church. For verily I say unto you, I will that ye should overcome the world. Wherefore I will have compassion upon you. The Savior wants to use these early members of the church to help overthrow the wickedness of the world, and that is why he has compassion for them to see if they will make themselves worthy after receiving forgiveness of their sins. The Lord's perspective is borne out in the next two verses. There are those among you who have sinned, but verily I say, for this once for mine own glory, and for the salvation of souls, I have forgiven you your sins. I will be merciful unto you, for I have given unto you the kingdom. There are members of the church who have sinned greatly. Incidental to events connected with the next section, we discover that some are even apostatizing from the church and contemplating physical violence against Joseph Smith. This is the first time this phenomenon has appeared among the apostates in church history. Meanwhile, the Lord is inclined to be merciful to lesser sinners. He allows them to remain in the church so that the work of the Lord can survive and press forward. And the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom shall not be taken from my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. through the means I have appointed, while he liveth, inasmuch as he obeyeth mine ordinances. Almost in anticipation of events relating to the next section, Jesus warns the more serious offenders, who long to destroy the prophet Joseph, that no one can take from him his sacred calling so long as he lives, providing he continues to live within the parameters of the Savior's ordinances. There are those who have sought occasion against him without cause. Nevertheless, he has sinned. But verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me, and ask forgiveness, who have not sinned unto death. The Lord openly accuses some members of the church with having castigated Joseph Smith without cause. 
Then the Savior quickly adds that Joseph has done some things that offend the Lord, but emphasizes that he quickly tries to repent of these deficiencies and has therefore been continually forgiven. This means that the fabrications against Joseph are false accusations, while the actual offenses he has committed have been erased because he has recognized these faults and sincerely repented. The Lord then lays down the rule of heaven, that he is capable of forgiving all who have repented unless they have committed murder or sinned against the Holy Ghost. This means betraying God after receiving great light and knowledge from across the veil. My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. Now the Lord refers to apostles of old who criticized one another and committed the further offense of not forgiving one another after they had repented. The second offense of carrying grudges against each other was so serious that the ancient apostles were punished for it. The scriptures acknowledge that it is difficult to forgive someone who makes no effort to repent. But here is what the Lord told Alma. Quote, And ye shall also forgive one another your trespasses. For verily I say unto you, He that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses, when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. Unquote. That's in Mosiah 26 and 31. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. All members of the church are required to forgive all who are sincerely trying to repent. But what about those who have committed offenses but don't repent? And ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. For not so serious offenses, we simply say in our hearts that God can judge between the offended person and his neighbor. And him that repenteth not of his sins, and confesseth them not, ye shall bring before the church, and do with him as the Scripture saith unto you, either by commandment or by revelation. But in the case of serious offenses, the unrepentant are to be brought before the councils of the church. And if they are stubbornly unrepentant, here is what Alma was told to do with them. Quote, and those who would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquity, the same were not numbered among the people of the church, and their names were blotted out. Unquote. And that's in Mosiah 26 and 36. And this ye shall do that God may be glorified, not because ye forgive not, having not compassion, but that ye may be justified in the eyes of the law, that ye may not offend him who is your lawgiver. Verily I say, for this cause ye shall do these things. 
In this last situation involving action against a wicked, unrepentant member of the church, it is not a sin to take action without compassion because it is required under God's law. Failure to do so would be an offense unto God. Behold, I, the Lord, was angry with him who was my servant Ezra Booth, and also my servant Isaac Morley, for they kept not the law, neither the commandment. They sought evil in their hearts, and I, the Lord, withheld my spirit. They condemned for evil that thing in which there was no evil. Nevertheless, I have forgiven my servant Isaac Morley. In these two verses, the Lord anticipates the problem we will deal with in the next section. The Lord says Ezra Booth, who is a member of the church, and another member, Isaac Morley, have not only failed to keep the law of consecration and certain other commandments, but only Isaac Morley has repented and therefore been forgiven. Meanwhile, Ezra Booth, a former Methodist minister, has not repented and is not as yet forgiven. The offense of these two men was that they charged with evil that which was not evil. Fortunately, Isaac Morley recognized his error and repented, and is now back in good standing in the church. And also my servant Edward Partridge, behold, he hath sinned, and Satan seeketh to destroy his soul. But when these things are made known unto them, and they repent of the evil, they shall be forgiven. The presiding bishop, Edward Partridge, has also made some serious mistakes because Satan had him targeted for destruction. However, when both he and Isaac Morley had their offenses called to their attention, they promptly corrected their erroneous conduct and are now assured that they are forgiven. And now verily I say that it is expedient in me that my servant Sidney Gilbert, after a few weeks, shall return upon his business and to his agency in the land of Zion. Sidney Gilbert, an experienced and prosperous merchant, had been told by the Lord to set up a store for the benefit of the saints in Zion. No doubt he had returned to Kirtland to arrange his affairs and complete his plans for the store in Zion. Now the Lord tells him it is time to wind up his affairs and return to Zion. And that which he hath seen and heard may be made known unto my disciples, that they perish not. And for this cause have I spoken these things. Because Sidney Gilbert is highly respected, it will also be good to have a trusted leader. Return to Zion and put down the rumors and allegations which apostates have been spreading around. Sidney Gilbert is therefore instructed to become a special witness and inform the saints as to what has really been happening in Kirtland. And again I say unto you, that my servant Isaac Morley may not be tempted above that which he is able to bear, and counsel wrongfully to your hurt. I gave commandment that his farm should be sold. The word of the Lord to Isaac Morley is that the Lord realizes the sale of his farm and the migration to Zion is a severe trial to him. The Lord admonishes him to go ahead and sell the farm and then he can invest the proceeds in Zion. I will not that my servant Frederick G. Williams should sell his farm, for I, the Lord, will to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years, in the which I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may save some, 
And after that day I, the Lord, will not hold any guilty that shall go with an open heart up to the land of Zion. For I, the Lord, require the hearts of the children of men. In contrast to the advice to Isaac Morley, Frederick G. Williams is told not to sell his farm for at least five years. The Lord says he wants to have a stronghold in Kirtland for at least five more years, and then it will be up to the Kirtland saints to decide for themselves whether to remain in Kirtland or move to Zion. As we shall see shortly, there were to be some spectacular things accomplished in Kirtland, which was the Lord's second headquarters. Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man, and verily it is a day of sacrifice, and a day for the tithing of my people, for he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. For after today cometh the burning, this is speaking after the manner of the Lord. For verily I say, Tomorrow all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and I will burn them up, for I am the Lord of hosts, and I will not spare any that remain in Babylon. Wherefore, if ye believe me, ye will labor while it is called today. The Lord will need the treasures of the church to be strengthened with the honest payment of tithes, and therefore he says that the preparation for the second coming will include extensive investments in church funds. The Lord then gives this divine promise, that they who pay their tithes will be protected from the sweeping destruction by fire when the Lord comes. The Savior also implies that there will be a great gathering of the saints before the burning, and no one will be spared who remains in Babylon among the wicked. For all those who want to be saved and blessed when Jesus comes, they must labor with all their might during the preparatory period, and paying their tithes is an important part of it. And it is not meet that my servants Newell K. Whitney and Sidney Gilbert should sell their store and their possessions here. For this is not wisdom until the residue of the church, which remaineth in this place, shall go up unto the land of Zion. This is an interesting instruction, because the two business partners, Newell K. Whitney and Sidney Gilbert, own a store in Kirtland and have prospered, and the Lord does not want it to be sold until it is time for the remnant in Kirtland to leave and go to Zion. And according to verse 22, this will be some time after five years. Behold, it is said in my laws, or forbidden, to get in debt to thine enemies. But behold, it is not said at any time that the Lord should not take when he please, and pay as seemeth him good. Wherefore, as ye are agents, ye are on the Lord's errand. And whatever ye do according to the will of the Lord is the Lord's business. And he hath set you to provide for his saints in these last days, that they may obtain an inheritance in the land of Zion. And behold, I the Lord declare unto you, and my words are sure and shall not fail, that they shall obtain it. But all things must come to pass in their time. These verses are teeming with prophetic implications. The Lord already knows that in the not-too-distant future the wickedness of the Gentiles and the weakness in some of the saints 
will result in their expulsion from Zion. Nevertheless, a foundation must be laid for the glorious Zion, which will ultimately be established in this place. The Lord must therefore assure the faithful saints that God's promises will be completely fulfilled, even though, quote, things must come to pass in their time, unquote. We now know that the Savior was making many promises which would be gloriously fulfilled in the lives of the descendants of those to whom he was speaking. Meanwhile, he wanted the present inhabitants of Zion to be righteous and faithful even unto death. Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. And out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. In this same spirit of prophetic anticipation, the Lord pleads with these valiant saints to persevere and not be weary in well-doing. He assures them that they are laying the foundation of a magnificent and glorious work. Certainly out of small things they achieve, great accomplishments will be realized. Zion consists of, quote, the pure in heart, unquote, and wherever the stakes of Zion have taken root, they have flourished over time and produced fantastic results. And the rebellious shall be cut off out of the land of Zion, and shall be sent away and shall not inherit the land. But in the process of threshing out the chaff through tribulation and trials, the rebellious will not have a Zion in this life nor in the life to come. Even if they live among the saints, they will not reap the fruits of a true Zion. For verily I say that the rebellious are not of the blood of Ephraim, wherefore they shall be plucked out. The Lord says the meek who will inherit the earth are not the rebellious. He says the royal blood of Ephraim is not rebellious, and those who do rebel are not of the eternal Ephraimite covenant. Behold, I, the Lord, have made my church in these last days, like unto a judge sitting on a hill, or in a high place, to judge the nations. In the visionary mind of Jesus is the scene of a future day, when the persecuted saints will sit in judgment of all the nations, including these satanical elements who are persecuting them so bitterly. For it shall come to pass that the inhabitants of Zion shall judge all things pertaining to Zion, and liars and hypocrites shall be proved by them, and they who are not apostles and prophets shall be known. Furthermore, the righteous will sort out those who rose in the ranks of the church but were hypocrites and used their offices to minister unrighteous dominion. As church history unfolds, we are astonished to see such ambitious and highly influential leaders in the kingdom sometimes exposed as enemies of righteousness and sometimes even plotting murder of the true prophets of God. Such names come to mind as Thomas Marsh, president of the Quorum of the Twelve in Missouri, who admitted plotting to have Joseph removed or killed so he could be the president of the church. And then there was George Hinkle in charge of the church military forces at Far West, who deliberately betrayed the whole leadership of the church, including Joseph and Hiram. 
He betrayed them into the hands of murderous state authorities who planned to have them all shot. Many others could be cited who for a brief time were apostles or other influential authorities, but who betrayed their trust and will eventually be judged by Joseph and his associates who were loyal and faithful. Many hypocrites in the early days of the church would never have been exposed if the Lord had not allowed them to climb so high that, like Judas Iscariot, they exposed their true natures. And even the bishop, who is a judge, and his counselors, if they are not faithful in their stewardships, shall be condemned, and others shall be planted in their stead. The Lord warns that even those in the church who are appointed bishops or judges, together with their counselors, will end up in oblivion if they are not faithful. For behold, I say unto you that Zion shall flourish, and the glory of the Lord shall be upon her, and she shall be an ensign unto the people, and there shall come unto her out of every nation under heaven. Whenever the history of the saints passes through a time of sorrow and persecution, the Savior can look down the corridors of time and see the future glory of Zion when all of God's purposes will be fulfilled in her for those who are faithful. And the day shall come when the nations of the earth shall tremble because of her and shall fear because of her terrible ones. The Lord hath spoken it. Amen. When the saints preside over the whole earth, the nations will know that her leaders will be like Enoch of old. No nation dared attack the people of Enoch because he had the power of the priesthood to even command the elements. At his commands there were convulsions in the earth which split the crust of the planet and terrified the enemies of Enoch with paralyzing fear. Rivers left their courses and sent walls of churning destruction down upon those who tried to attack Enoch's people. When Zion ministers peace to all the nations of the world, they will all have reason to fear the godly powers of the mighty peacemakers of Zion. Section 65, Introduction it was now October, 1831, and it was about this time that one of the missionaries who had gone to Missouri apostatized from the church. His name was Ezra Booth, a former Methodist minister, who joined the church after seeing Joseph Smith instantly heal the lame arm of the wife of John Johnson. To justify his apostasy, Booth began publishing a series of nine letters in the Ohio Star, which was published in Ravenna, Portage County, Ohio. An examination of these letters demonstrates that his main reason for leaving the church were actually very superficial. He said Joseph Smith was too jovial for a prophet. Ezra Booth said Joseph indulged in lightness and levity. He also accused Joseph of being very sensitive to criticism so that his temper was easily irritated. There was no accusation of immorality, telling falsehoods, twisting the scriptures, or preaching false doctrines. Of course, the Lord had reprimanded Ezra Booth in section 64, verse 15, and this may have been the basis for his complaint that Joseph was easily irritated. 
He seems to have attributed this rebuke in the scripture to Joseph rather than to the Lord. It is interesting that several other apostates had joined with Booth, including Jacob Scott, Simon Ryder, and Eli Johnson. In fact, after Booth had written his nine letters, the opposition against the prophet gradually increased until by March 1832, a mob of around 40 to 50 men were ready to make a direct attack on Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, and many of the mob wanted to kill them. However, during the six months interval between the time when Joseph and Sidney first moved in with the Johnson family and the time of actual attack on Joseph and Sidney, 13 revelations had been received by the prophet. The first one occurred early in October 1831. Section 65 is a proclamation of the Lord to all the world but Joseph Smith described it as a prayer which the Lord dictated to him. And here is the text of section 65. Hearken, and lo, a voice as of one sent down from on high, who is mighty and powerful, whose going forth is unto the ends of the earth, yea, whose voice is unto men. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, this first verse is a divine declaration to the ends of the earth that mankind should prepare for the second coming. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. It was amazing that the keys to the holy kingdom of God had actually been restored to God's chosen servants here on earth. The prophecy made by Daniel just prior to 600 B.C. was being literally fulfilled, and the stone cut out of the mountain without hands was going to roll forth and fill the whole earth. This is in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. This is the most glorious pronouncement since the day that Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she was about to bring forth a child and his name would be called Jesus. And that's in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Yea, a voice crying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the supper of the Lamb. Make ready for the bridegroom. Not only is the kingdom of God being restored, but God's commandment to all humanity is to prepare for the bridegroom, even Jesus Christ, whose second coming is near. Pray unto the Lord. Call upon his holy name. Make known his wonderful works among the people. This is like saying, quote, pray and preach, unquote. Seek the Spirit of God and proclaim the restored gospel to all mankind. The gospel is restored. Apostles and prophets are once more walking the earth. As we mentioned earlier in this study, this is something Thomas Jefferson had anticipated, and that set forth in the book by Andrew Allison, The Real Thomas Jefferson, page 366. Call upon the Lord, that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it, 
and be prepared for the days to come, in the which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. This verse anticipates the glorious time in the not-too-distant future, when the kingdom of heaven will descend with God's angelic host to triumphantly join the saints who belong to the kingdom of God on earth. Wherefore, may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come, that thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued. For thine is the honor, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. The coming of the Lord will be a day of victory when righteousness will triumph over evil and Satan will be stripped of his dominion over the earth. This is the good news the Lord wants the saints to proclaim to all mankind. Section 66 Introduction Shortly after receiving Section 65 in October 1831, the Prophet and Sidney Rigdon continued their work on the revision of the Scriptures as indicated by the Holy Spirit. However, their work on the Scriptures was interrupted by three conferences. They held one on October the 11th, 1831, at the home of Father Johnson. The second was held October 21st at Kirtland, Ohio, and the third was held October 25th to 26th at Orange, Ohio. It was during this third conference that William E. McClellan asked Joseph for a revelation on his behalf. Brother McClellan had received the gospel at the hands of Samuel H. Smith and Reynolds Cahoon when these two brethren were en route to take the gospel to the Indians on the frontiers of Missouri. This was in the early summer of 1831. He followed the brethren to Missouri and was baptized and ordained an elder while on the way. Then he came to Kirtland to meet the prophet that same summer and therefore attended the conference at Orange. When he requested a revelation, the following was received. Behold, thus saith the Lord unto my servant William E. McClellan, Blessed are you inasmuch as you have turned away from your iniquities and have received my truths, saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Savior of the world, even of as many as believe on my name. Verily I say unto you, Blessed are you for receiving mine everlasting covenant, even the fullness of my gospel, sent forth unto the children of men, that they might have life, and be made partakers of the glories which are to be revealed in the last days, as it was written by the prophets and apostles in days of old. William E. McClellan was complimented for joining the church and turning away from his former iniquities. He is assured that by this means he might partake of the glories incidental to the restoration of the gospel. Verily I say unto you, my servant William, that you are clean, but not all. Repent, therefore, of those things which are not pleasing in my sight, saith the Lord, for the Lord will show them unto you. The Lord identified a weakness of Brother McClellan, which turned out to be immorality. His repentance had brought his sins under the atonement, but in this one respect he was not clean and needed further repentance. 
And now verily I, the Lord, will show unto you what I will concerning you, or what is my will concerning you. Behold, verily I say unto you, that it is my will that you should proclaim my gospel from land to land, and from city to city, yea, in those regions round about where it has not been proclaimed. The Lord was very explicit in telling Brother McClellan what he wanted him to do. He was to be an important missionary and preach the gospel from city to city, and in those regions where the people had already heard the message of the restored gospel, but had not accepted it. Tarry not many days in this place. Go not up unto the land of Zion as yet, but inasmuch as you can send, send. Otherwise, think not of thy property. However, he was not to spend many days in Orange, Ohio, nor was he to follow the missionaries down into Missouri. Furthermore, the Lord urged him to send whatever money he could and not to worry about his property in Ohio. Go unto the eastern lands, bear testimony in every place, unto every people and in their synagogues, reasoning with the people. He was commanded to go into the eastern lands, and he was specifically instructed to preach the gospel of peace by reasoning with the people. Let my servant Samuel H. Smith go with you, and forsake him not and give him thine instructions, and he that is faithful shall be made strong in every place, and I, the Lord, will go with you. He was instructed to take Samuel H. Smith with him and, quote, forsake him not, unquote. There must have been some special reason why the Lord would include this warning. Lay your hands upon the sick, and they shall recover. Return not till I, the Lord, shall send you. Be patient in affliction. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. These two missionaries were to be anxiously engaged in blessing those who were sick. They were also told to stay in the mission field until they were called to come home. The Lord knew they would face a certain amount of affliction, but the Savior instructed them to endure it with patience. Seek not to be cumbered. Forsake all unrighteousness. Commit not adultery, a temptation with which thou hast been troubled. The Lord said Elder McClellan should travel light and not encumber himself with too many clothes or unnecessary items of baggage. He was also warned against the temptation to commit adultery, a temptation with which the Lord knew he had been struggling. Keep these sayings, for they are true and faithful, and thou shalt magnify thine office, and push many people to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. As a final admonition, the Lord instructed Brother McClellan to carefully consider everything which the Lord had said, and, quote, keep these sayings, unquote, continually in his mind. He should magnify his office by urging the people to go to Zion, where the saints will eventually triumph with songs of everlasting joy. Continue in these things even unto the end, and you shall have a crown of eternal life at the right hand of my Father, 
who is full of grace and truth. Verily, thus saith the Lord your God, your Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. A historical note about William E. McClellan. William E. McClellan exhibited his pride and egotism a short time later by boasting that he could write the revelations in the forthcoming Doctrine and Covenants better than Joseph Smith had written them. The Lord challenged him to try to do it, and he failed miserably. However, he seems to have been very diligent in his missionary work, and so he was chosen by the three witnesses to be one of the apostles in the Quorum of the Twelve. When he went on a mission to the East, he baptized five converts. However, while on this mission, he wrote a letter to Kirtland censuring the First Presidency. As a result, he was disfellowshipped. Later, he confessed his error and was forgiven, so he was restored to full fellowship again. On Friday, May the 11th, 1838, William E. McClellan came before a bishop's court in far west Missouri. There, he said, he had no confidence in the first presidency of the church. He admitted that he had quit praying and keeping the commandments. He admitted indulging himself in, quote, sinful lusts, unquote. He was therefore excommunicated. During the persecution of the saints in far west Missouri, McClellan joined the forces of the mob. While Joseph Smith was in prison, he ransacked Joseph's home and stole some of his horses. McClellan was a large and powerfully built man, and he asked the sheriff for the privilege of flogging Joseph Smith. Permission was granted. Amazingly, Joseph agreed to this, providing the irons were taken from his feet and he was allowed to defend himself. McClellan then refused to fight unless he was allowed to use a club. Joseph said he would still fight him, but the sheriff would not allow such an unfair contest. Apparently, Joseph was confident he could somehow get the club away from McClellan and give him the threshing he deserved. After the saints left Missouri, McClellan undertook to start his own church with himself at the head. The attempt failed. He also tried to earn a living practicing medicine. Eventually, he died in obscurity and poverty at Independence in 1883. If you liked this podcast and would like more materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find his other books and recordings at skousenlibrary.com or at your local LDS bookstore.